Welcome to Swell Conversations, a promotional HAE series. I'm your host, Dr. John Anderson, and joining me today is Dr. Doreen Siri. Uh, this is part one of a four-part series, and today we will focus on simplifying the science, the root cause of HAE. This educational program is sponsored by Farming Healthcare, Inc. The speakers have been compensated for the presentation of this information. The information contained within this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. Patient experiences may be discussed in this episode. It is important to recognize that these experiences may not be representative as every patient has a unique disease course. This activity is not intended for continuing medical education credits. Again, my name is John Anderson. I'm an allergist here in Alabama. Been blessed to have an opportunity to treat patients with HAE for over a decade now. This is part one of our podcast series. And briefly, what we'll be talking about in each episode is uh, a conversation with another HAE expert, trying to dig into some of the nuances of hereditary angioedema, also known as HAE. We'll be talking about the different challenges that our patients or, our, or the providers might face in managing, diagnosing, and treating this condition. And we'll talk about some of the approaches, communication techniques, and management tips in, in helping uh, patients manage their disease or their caregivers and loved ones help them as well. Today's episode is titled Simplifying the Science, the Root Cause of HAE. And today we'll be talking about HAE, which is a C1 esterase inhibitor disease or a C1 disease. And we'll talk about what we can do as healthcare providers to help, you know, translate what this uh, mechanism is to our, our colleagues or to our patients. And of course, we're blessed to have Dr. Doreen Siri to make it all easy for us. And so Doreen, tell us a little bit about you. What got you interested in uh, treating HAE? Welcome. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me today uh, on this program. I'm really excited to talk about HIE. It's one of my passions. Just like you, I practice in private practice and also have an academic affiliation. I'm located in central Illinois. I practice in the largest combined allergy and respiratory practice in our region. And we have a lot of referrals because we've not really shied away from treating patients with complex medical conditions. So this has become a bit of a referral center for managing patients with severe, complicated rare conditions like HAE. And I think it's important for us to have these types of referral centers where people have familiarity, expertise. That way, patients can really get the best care and coordinate with their local physicians in order to get diagnosis more quickly, get treatment plans more effectively, and certainly get therapies. I think that as an allergist immunologist, just like you, I treat a lot of immunology patients. Uh, at some point, allergists are involved in managing HAE because during this discovery process, the patient may think they're swelling or perhaps their doctor thinks their swelling is from an allergy. And of course, they find out that later it's an immunological disease. And luckily for you and me, John, we, we treat both conditions, right? So that's, that's great for us. And finally, when we're able to make a diagnosis and figure out that, you know, it's not allergy, which can be a time-consuming and harrowing process for many patients, it can take years even to get the diagnosis because um, not everyone's familiar with disease. I think it can give us a, a lot of uh, relief, satisfaction in that we know what causes it and we know the treatment plan. And we can see if we can control some of that unpredictability that occurs with the disease. So in thinking about that, the you know, we, we acknowledge that this is a, a rare disease. We'll often publish, uh, you know, that this is like 
one in 50,000. And yet, depending upon where you practice, you might have a higher density of patients. Certainly, uh, where I where I live and work, we're known to have a large family cohort. But as we're you know thinking about this and sharing it with our colleagues about what to look for and what is it like, you know, how would you describe to somebody who doesn't have HAE but is on the lookout for it? What does HAE look like and feel like? I would love to address that. It's really important for us to get that diagnosis because it is rare and uh, many people may not be familiar. As you, you and I both know, hereditary angioedema is a rare genetic disorder. And although it can be autosomal dominant, you know, it can manifest later in life, it can manifest early in life, the features being variable can make it difficult to diagnose. And many patients who are diagnosed are what we call de novo, which means that there was no one in the family who had it before. As you know, HAE is characterized by recurrent episodes of swelling. It can infect various parts of the body, the face, the limbs, the GI tract. As we both know, it is caused by a deficiency of C1 inhibitor, which means there are low levels in the body, or it may be caused by a dysfunction of the protein. So the protein may look like it's a normal level, but actually it doesn't work that well. And we know that C1 inhibitor is involved in regulating certain immune reactions. So a person who presents with an HAE attack, which is oftentimes how they get diagnosed because they're having one attack, multiple attacks, one, they'll get swelling. That's you know the, the name of the podcast, which is swell. The swelling typically occurs without warning. It can affect different areas, as we talked about. It can vary from mild to severe. There are some areas of the body that may look milder and some areas of the body that may be more severe. And the same patient may have varying severities over time, depending on triggers and things like that. So typically when the patient has these areas of swelling, it is painful. Many of my patients present with abdominal symptoms and that can be severe pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, and unfortunately for these patients who manifest only a gastrointestinal disorder, it can lead to misdiagnosis because when they present to an ER or see a doctor for the first time and don't have a diagnosis, people think that they have an acute abdomen or appendicitis or some other primary abdominal gastrointestinal issue. We can talk about triggers as well. Your patients probably have a lot of triggers. My patients, you know, it's psychological or physical stress, sometimes trauma, surgery, dental procedures even, when they're having hormonal changes certain times of their month when they're menstruating, certain medications like oral contraceptives, infections, and then certainly many patients don't have any identifiable trigger. And so this can be really distressing for them. Uh, we talk a lot about how unpredictable this is, and I think a lot of that stress that you mentioned, part of it is the worry about, you know, when am I going to have another attack and, you know, is it going to happen while I'm out of the house or when I'm on the road? And, and all of that lack of control, I think, really adds to a burden uh, as far as managing this. Uh, yet, some patients talk about having early warning signs or or a way to kind of tell. And, and I was going to ask you, you know, are there early indicators or how does a person know if an attack is coming or if the attack is imminent? I think that those early warning signs or what we call as um, medical professionals, prodromal symptoms are really important to recognize. And not everybody has them, uh, but if the patient does have them, whether it's with some attacks or with others, it's important for them to document those, keep a diary, let us know who are treating them so that perhaps we can develop a better 
plan in preventing or treating early um, or uh, resolving that for them more quickly. But some of my patients have uh, prodromal symptoms such as fatigue. They just feel exhausted before they have an HA attack. A lot of them have this muscle aching. They have discomfort in their joints, their limbs, their muscles, especially perhaps in the area that may be swelling. They can experience mood changes. And then a lot of our patients, especially the ones who are having a progression of a GI attack or gastrointestinal attack, they can have some nausea to start with. So most every week I see patients in my practice who are presenting with hives. Uh, sometimes they'll have associated swelling or angioedema. They're very itchy. And, and you had started to differentiate how this might be different than our HAE patients. For, for these patients who are having more hives, uh, we'll do a workup. It can include labs and skin testing. And when we start talking about treatment, we really focus on antihistamines as our pathway that we're trying to modify. In what ways does that more common or typical hives with angioedema patient look similar to or differentiate from HAE? You know, what's the overlap and what's what's unique? That is a really important uh, consideration because certainly common things are common. Patients come in with urticaria, allergic issues, or other forms of swelling, and we have to take our knowledge of the patients who are not responding and don't look classical or maybe have associated features to say, hey, this, this isn't classically what we think of as allergic urticaria or angioedema and urticaria in that condition. So uh, I think that one of the things that I look for when I'm thinking about hereditary angioedema versus urticaria or allergic triggers is the duration of the swelling. So for many patients, as you and I have seen that, you know, the typical hives start uh, and very quickly resolves oftentimes in 24 hours. But in HAE, the swelling typically lasts for longer than that. As we talked about, you know, sometimes 72 hours um, or more in some of the patients. And also with the appearance, you know, it's non-pitting, so it's not that kind of edema that we think about. And so when we press it, uh, there's no indentation. It looks fairly continuous in terms of the skin. There's not a clear demarcated area, at least in the later parts of the swelling. And certainly that itch component, it uh, is not driving people crazy. There's really not a lot of itch. And certainly we know that urticaria and other forms of allergic rashes is characterized by really intense itching. And so HAE is really not like that. And certainly you talked about treatment, like antihistamines, you know, antihistamines don't work on HAE. It doesn't really provide that much relief. Corticosteroids and epinephrine, those medications don't work. So if we keep having a patient come into our prompt care ER as a primary care, we give them these medications and they're not really resolving the patient's symptoms. I think we need to look for an alternative diagnosis. You know, I can think about some of my patients in their journey to diagnosis, describing how, yeah, they were given antihistamines or given steroids and two days later they were better. And, and they're debating about, you know, they're, they're kind of affirming, hey, maybe that helped. And I'm, I'm thinking, no, that's a red flag that maybe it didn't help. Uh, to your point, that's absolutely something really, really essential for us to understand is that sometimes, you know, the, the patient's angioedema resolves in several days anyway. So do these medications really help or, or, um, or, or not? So I think it makes it sometimes hard to diagnose those patients. All right. So if you have a patient who is having an HAE attack, uh, what should that patient do? 
that patient should respond with exactly what is outlined in the Hereditary Angioedema Association Medical Advisory Board Clinical Guidelines, which recommend that, first of all, all patients have access to an acute therapy, regardless of whether they're on long-term prophylactic therapy. The second thing is that they should treat all attacks regardless of their location. The third component that is very important as well is early administration of the on-demand treatment to prevent attack progression. So I typically classify the management of HAE into four pillars. One, the effective on-demand therapy, as we talked about. Second, that preventative therapy if needed. Third, an action plan developed by experts such as you and me um, in coordination with a patient uh, to know how to treat, to self-inject if needed, to do self-care and treatment, because certainly they may not have um, easy access to a tertiary medical facility. And then uh, finally, uh, when to escalate their therapy and seek help when appropriate, if they need to go somewhere for additional treatment after they've already self-treated. And uh, it's really important in terms of that educational component. So most of my patients do have definitely an on-demand medication and perhaps even more than one. How about your patients, John? So I totally agree with having access to on-demand medication and emphasizing that option of of treatment. I do agree that patients are, when they decide this on their own, sometimes they're electing not to treat. And uh, that's that's a cause of concern. I, I do try to put a human face to this, and I, I acknowledge that there are reasons why a, a patient might choose that. And other times I'll try to, you know, kind of use myself as an example. I have asthma, and I'll talk about, sometimes I'm on the couch, and I'm wheezing, and my rescue medication is all the way over there in the kit in the bathroom. And I'm like too lazy to go take my medicine. And it's so easy. I mean, it's just, why am I doing that? And, and, and I, I'm trying to, to at least appeal to that. This is a human behavior. We acknowledge that this is what we do. And, and then to try to break down why is that happening and, and, and try to then encourage them to, to be more proactive with their action plan. So thinking about fellowship, I remember one of my attendings demonstrating the uh, uh, calocrine pathway or the contact pathway and all of the different elements of that pathway and telling me that I'm going to just need to memorize this once so I can pass the test. And I don't know how many of my colleagues out there can, can kind of I remember sort of knowing this, but then not really remembering, you know, each of the different enzymes and the order and what happens, you know, when it happens. A lot of times when we talk about HAE, we focus on C1 esterase inhibitor. It's kind of that 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 master regulator of this pathway. But for, for those who can identify with that foggy, dim memory of the contact pathway, what is the role of C1 esterase inhibitor? How does it how does it affect calocrine pathway and and what should our colleagues really kind of know about it? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, C1 inhibitor plays a really important role in regulating inflammation and the complement system in particular. So certainly, one when a uh, inflammation occurs, then at some point that inflammation has to dissipate. So you think about all the players, whether they're cytokines or chemicals or cells coming into an area, kind of like 
a flood of people going into an arena. And when the game is over and the inflammation is gone, you tell everybody, go home, folks, you know, <laughs> empty out the stadium. And so um, the inhibitor is almost like the ushers that are kind of telling people to, you know, time to go home, guys. They've got to um, suppress things, regulate proteins, et cetera. And so when that process goes unchecked and there's no C1 inhibitor and there's nobody to tell the folks to go home, it then, of course, continues. And this all drives the single important protein, which causes a lot of vasodilation and things like that called bradykinin. So we know that there are key roles in C1 inhibitor. And if we have low levels of C1 inhibitor, that's a problem. And if we have a dysfunctional C1 inhibitor, that's a problem. And so uh, we know that C1 inhibitor, we think of it as activation of the classical pathway for complement, a really important part of the immune response. And then we also think of an important contact system regulatory pathway as well. These then uh, lead to, as we talked about, whether it's suppressing or regulate, regulating factor 12, precalcrine, or high molecular weight kininogen. We talk about the fact that bradykinin, uh, which then increases production and goes unregulated, it's, it's a potent meter of inflammation and it causes blood vessels to become leaky and causes that swelling. So I think that it's important for us to recognize the various important roles of C1 inhibitor in many pathways in inflammation, all leading to increased bradykinin production when they are not available to help suppress or regulate some of those inflammatory proteins. So I totally love the example of the usher being the C1 esterase inhibitor. And this is just because when I was in college, I worked security at football and basketball games. So now I get to really identify, it, it brings it full circle. You know, I I was C1-esterase inhibitor, and now I champion the <laughs> treatment with C1-esterase inhibitors. So. So I like that. I'm going to I'm going to remember that one. There's a great video that's presented by our colleague who we know well, another HAE expert, Dr. Michael Manning. I love hearing about how he presents the science of HAE in that video. Yeah, that's a really great video. Uh, if any of our uh, listeners would like to look at it, it can be found at rukinescom hcp videos and also, if there are anybody who's interested in a full reference list for this episode or others, it can be found in the, in the description for our podcast. So far, we've talked a lot about um, you know, insights about what is HAE, certainly how we try to communicate some of these important factors to our colleagues. But it's also uh, important to kind of share this complexity with our patients and really promote patient understanding. Uh, what do you do to try to connect to patients on these topics? And, and how do you kind of break down that complexity for them? I like to think of inflammation as little fires being set off in the body. And how C1 esterase inhibitor, C1 inhibitor works is that it, it's a protein that puts out those fires, like a ranger checking on each campfire using um, his or her reserves in a fire truck to put out the fires. So when you don't have an adequate ranger, or maybe that ranger is just inept, those fires can go unchecked and spread and then set fires in other areas. So you can think of that like excess calocrine and then bradykinin causing that um, wave of inflammation and then tissue swelling 
and a lot of vasodilation. So having the deficiency of C1 esterase is a lot like having a low tank in your fire truck. So in terms of treatment, we have to fill up the reserves of our fire truck to be ready for when a fire may break out and we've got to regulate it just like we might be the park ranger. That's awesome. I too will use fire as an example of inflammation. And sometimes I'll even talk about the difference between like a grease fire or an electrical fire that you don't put them out the exact same way. And that kind of helps patients understand why we might do different treatments for different types of angioedema. I think that it's really important to underscore the fact that HAE with every single patient is very heterogeneous. No two patients are alike. As we talked about in the same family with the same mutation, the patients may be quite different. We know that there are hundreds of different mutations, several genes that are implicated, certainly in regulating this process with C1 esterase inhibitor or C1 inhibitor production and function. But patients are surprised to know that uh, they may have a different mutation than the other person in their support group that has HAE as well, because it manifests in the same way, and that's swelling. So um, when I discuss with the disease with them, uh, I often talk about the fact that, you know, we are all uh, hopefully in the center, and we want to stay centered. But when we have a crazy disease like this, where it is really spontaneous, unpredictable, it's like a yo-yo or a roller coaster and something comes along and puts them off center and now they're out of their orbit. And then we're trying to, as quickly as we can, get back to center because as we talked about, patients will stop going to work. They won't go to school. They won't go outside the house. They're in a lot of pain. It's very disruptive. And so hopefully if we drive home the fact there are other people like them, we know what causes it. We know that there are effective treatments that they feel more confident about taking control of their life. Well, you know, I think bringing it back to the individual is so important and letting the patients know that, yes, there are those that are like them that have this, but also letting them, you know, acknowledge that in some ways their circumstance is unique and, and that their fix or their plan uh, hopefully can, yeah, as you say, it can be tailored, you know, to them. And we've talked a lot about explaining that disease process or sharing or driving learning and education in that domain. And that naturally lends itself to making choices about treatment. So uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about is that if we talk so much about C1 esterase inhibitor as that essential inhibitor or regulating enzyme, it highlights its role both in the process of HAE, but also as a potential treatment for HAE. And, and, you know, we're going to talk about Rucanest as uh, an option to treat acute attacks for patients who are having hereditary angioedema and treating their attacks. Rucanest is approved for acute treatment in adult and adolescent patients with hereditary angioedema. There was not enough data in the clinical studies to establish efficacy in patients with laryngeal attacks. And when you introduce Rucanest to your patients or, or to your colleagues, what, what do you highlight? How do you explain it to them? This educational component is so important. I love the fact that, you know, we're starting to talk about on-demand therapy, which of course is the primary treatment patients should have available. And uh, one of the really, really important factors is this replacement therapy. In hereditary angioedema, we have to restore or supplement the deficient or the dysfunctional C1 inhibitor protein. And how do we do that? Well, we have to administer C1 inhibitor 
exogenously, you know, um, replacing it. And so it can help uh, regulate the complement contact systems and prevent that excessive bradykinin. And as we both know, the Brucanest works by providing functional C1 inhibitor. So if we think about the clinical trial experience with Rucanest, what are some of the things that are important to highlight? I love talking about clinical trials. As you know, I run Clinical Research Center, and we both love doing clinical trials and uh, as well as um, talking to patients about them. So the clinical trial experience with Rucanest shows that it can effectively treat acute HA swelling attacks. The primary endpoint of that pivotal clinical trial, which means the median time to beginning of symptom relief in those 44 patients in the treatment arm, was 90 minutes for patients receiving the 50 units per kilogram of Rucanest. This is compared to the placebo arm in which those patients, uh, it was about a median time of 152 minutes. So this was statistically significant. Certainly in the open label extension study, the symptom relief began at 75 minutes. 97% of the swells were treated with just one dose of Rucanest in the open label uh, extension phase of the clinical study, 44 patients received the dose of 50 units per kilogram of Rucanest, and this was over 170 attacks. So in the pivotal trial, approximately nine out of 10 patients achieved symptom relief with just that one dose um, at that 50 units per kilogram. Certainly what I like is to see that in that open label phase, the onset of symptom relief began a little sooner. And to me, that emphasizes that acknowledging that upon recognition of the attack, treating the attacks early is, is an important part of that management strategy. The other thing that we talk about with our patients, of course, is you know safety, you know, what potential side effects or adverse events were experienced in the trials. What can you share about that? I think is safety is paramount in any therapy for patients whether it's a common or rare disease like um, HAE, we have to be comfortable with the safety profile and patients want to know and have confidence in uh, information about safety. So some of the adverse event data, during the phase three pivotal clinical trial, there was a serious adverse reaction reported, which was a case of anaphylaxis. The most common adverse reactions, however, were headache, nausea, and diarrhea. And these were reported in instances of 2% or greater. It is contraindicated in patients with a history of rabbit allergy or hypersensitivity reactions to other C1 inhibitor preparations. Uh, so that's important to keep in mind. And of course, patients should be monitored and taught to monitor for signs and symptoms of allergic reactions, including hives, generalized urticaria, uh, tightness of the chest, wheezing, hypotension, and or anaphylaxis. If any of those symptoms occur, discontinue Rucanest treatment and administer an appropriate therapy. Now, on to blood clots. Serious arterial and venous thromboembolic events have been reported with the use of C1 inhibitor products. And risk factors may include the use of ports or any sort of venous access device, history of previous clots, underlying atherosclerosis, use of oral contraceptives or certain androgens, morbid obesity, and immobility. Patients can be trained to self-administer Rucanest once they recognize an attack. But uh, they should also know that if 
the attack is progressing or they are not able to properly prepare or administer Rucanest, they should have a plan in place to contact a healthcare professional to seek medical attention. They should not administer more than two doses within a 24-hour period. In terms of the most serious adverse reaction reported in clinical trials, it was anaphylaxis. During the clinical trials, the most common adverse reactions with an incidence of 2% or greater were headache, nausea, and diarrhea. Before prescribing Rucanest, please read the full prescribing information, including the patient product information. We're kind of getting to the end of our chat together, but what do you want to highlight for us? What are some of the key takeaways that we should be thinking about? As we are talking about a complex disease, uh, I think I want to emphasize this, although rare, it's genetically based disorder. The deficiency is that C1 inhibitor, or there may be a dysfunctional protein. This leads into uncontrolled activation of the complement and contact systems with increased bradykinin production that manifests as acute swelling attacks, which may uh, be in various parts of the body and can range over time in any patient, as well as range in severities. There is a really crucial role in replacement or augmentation of C1 inhibitor to help regulate that pathway to reduce attacks. And it's very important that patients treat all their HAE attacks and that they have availability to an on-demand acute therapy. Uh, one final thing I'll mention about takeaways uh, to our broader audience. I imagine some of our listeners are very comfortable managing HAE and others might be looking for uh, referral centers like yours and mine to help assist in that, in that management once found. The other thing is, is just that encouragement to screen patients who are having those red flags that you mentioned earlier. When I think about my practice, the vast majority of patients that I manage were not diagnosed by me. In fact, I have actually only diagnosed very few patients who are presenting with angioedema who then later become a patient who has HAE. Most of that screening work, I think, is done by our broader community. And so I'm I'm very uh, thankful for those who are ordering these labs and interpreting them and, 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 and taking that step and having that, that, that kind of index of suspicion. I think that's just critical. Uh, well, Doreen, this has been so much fun. And again, I just want to thank you for joining us today. I had a great pleasure of speaking to you about HAE and some of those really important considerations in ter terms of diagnosis. I thought we had a great discussion today. I look forward to hearing more about HAE and future episodes that you're going to be moderating. Well, thanks. I loved your analogies today. I just, I'm really going to hold on to those. Again, you know, thank you so much. And we're grateful to have had Dr. Siri joining us today. This was just a great conversation about hereditary angioedema and the science that underlies the condition. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, in the next episode, we will have a deeper dive into the different types of HAE with special attention to HAE with normal C1 esterase inhibitor. Also, we'll talk about hereditary angioedema association management guidelines and, of course, some of our own clinical experiences while managing patients with HAE. Again, I'm Dr. John Anderson, and I hope you will join me next time for another Swell Conversation.